0: All right, if you will, please take your Bibles to Hebrews chapter number 10. Thankful for Miss Vicki's special. Love that song. And I'll tell you, this evening as we're singing, A Shelter in the Time of Storm, I, I was listening to the words, which, by the way, I'd encourage you to do when you're singing a hymnal. But it kind of paints the picture of a wayfaring uh, stranger in the wilderness, in the desert. You think of... Uh, the children of Israel in the desert, and, and it kind of paints the picture of someone stumbling through the desert, and the sun's beating down on them, and uh, they're exhausted, they're looking for some kind of relief, and, the, and that song says, uh, a shade by day, so somewhere to retreat from the oppression of the sun, defense by night, it served as shade and the shelter for the wayfaring pilgrim that's our world, man. It beats us down. It is a, is a world that we live in that is just wicked and awful. And it will discourage our faith if we let it. But we have a shelter in the time Amen. of storm. Praise the Lord that Jesus is the rock in a weary land. And so, thankful for that. Hebrews chapter 10 this evening. We'll begin reading in verse number 19. I was reading my Bible. I came across this passage the other day and. Uh, Hebrews is one of my favorite books in all the Bible, and I love it. It's so deep doctrinally that I I don't ever feel as if I can do it justice. But I came to these verses, and while there is some depth and some doctrine here, this is a very practical portion of the book of Hebrews, which is in some cases rare to find in Hebrews because it's such a doctrinal book. But here we find in verse number 19, Hebrews chapter 10, the Bible says having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh and having an high priest over the house of god let us draw near with a heart a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that it promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now I almost called this sermon the salad of the Christian life. And you say, why, Brother Andrew? Well, because there's a lot of let us in this passage. Verse number 22, let us. Verse number 23, let us. Verse number 24, let us. But as I came to it, I realized I'm not much on fancy names and sermons. As I studied the passage out, I began to find that what you have here is the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the Christian to take the doctrine in the Bible and apply it to everyday life. Now, that sounds easy. And it sounds like probably most of us are already doing that, but we'll find in the study tonight that it's not always as easy as it may appear. See, the book of Hebrews, as I mentioned, is an extremely deep and doctrinal book. The purpose, purpose of its writing was it was written to Hebrew Christians to describe and explain to them the superiority of Christ. Amen. In every area, Christ is superior to what was before Him. It has been said that Romans revealed the necessity of the Christian faith, while Hebrews revealed the superiority of the Christian faith. And so, Hebrews is a book about making Christ superior in every way. I want to draw to your attention just a few verses in our chapter this evening so we can lay some context before we get to the sermon. But verse number 1 says this, "...for the law, having a shadow of good things, that is, a vague figure, a a, a shadow of of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The law only was a shadow or a uh, pre-runner to what would eventually come." The law was just the shade provided by the house of Jesus Christ. And while men may find relief in the shade, they cannot find no comfort, no permanent solution for their need of sin. And so we find that Christ is that solution. And the law could never take away with sacrifices the things that Christ could. Verse number 2. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. If, if sacrifices had been sufficient then they would have been permanent. But the fact that they were just a temporary solution uh, proves to us that it was not a permanent solution. Because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Imagine yourself being a, a Hebrew, a a Jewish man who had to go to the temple once a year to provide a a lamb or or a bullock of some sort to provide atonement for you and for your family. And every year you did this. You scheduled it and you remember it last year and you look forward to it the next year. Every year there was a constant expectation that they would have to do this. And that's what the sacrifices provided was the constant expectation that sin would still be a problem. Verse number 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. They never took it away, they only covered it for a little while and this was by the way the writing and the will of God and so in God's plan he made a way that these sacrifices would temporarily cover the sins of the people but the the old testament was just a picture book to help us understand what would come eventually quite the same way we might read to our children a, a very simple book that'll have pictures in it and we'll say see spot run and down below that, there will be a picture of a of a dog running. And then you see the red ball. And, and down below that, we would have a red ball. And we show our children pictures. That is not to somehow make the Old Testament seem uh, basic or elementary, for there's a lot of depth. But the whole purpose of the Old Testament was to point to the fact that Jesus would be the Messiah. And it was not possible by the blood of bulls and goats, that they should take away sins. I want to point your attention to verse number 9 of Hebrews chapter 10. The Bible says, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. That is the old system to the new system. The old covenant to the new covenant. The covenant that God made in these in the blood of bulls and goats now has been replaced by a superior covenant, that is the covenant sealed by the precious blood of Jesus. Verse number ten, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. For all, You see, we don't look forward to the next year when we have to bring our bulls and our goats and our, our lambs to take away our sins. For that was settled once and for all at Calvary, as the spotless Lamb of God was hung for the sins of mankind. We see that verse number 14 and verse number 15 says, "...for by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified." We are perfect. We are perfect forever through the atoning blood of Jesus, and we are made righteous in the washing of that blood. The Bible says in verse number fifteen, "Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us." For after that he said uh, he had said before, "This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days," saith the Lord, "I will put my laws into their heart and in their minds, and will I write them." You see, verse number 15 tells us that the Holy Ghost assures the saved Christian that their salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. His Spirit spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. And the Holy Spirit assures us of that fact. Sadly, today there is more doubt over eternal security than probably at any time in history And I'll tell you why it is, because people do not understand what it is to know the Holy Spirit of God. For His Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are His, and perfect love casteth out fear. We're not fearful because God tells us that He loves us every day when we wake up in the presence and the power of His Holy Spirit. See, there's so much doctrine and so much truth, but I can't even begin to delve into all, dive into all of it. But we find here, in where we started reading, we find some doctrines that I, I want to touch on this evening. The Bible says in verse number 19, these are some things that through the atonement of Christ on Calvary, He has earned for us. By the way, He did it all, we did nothing. Praise the Lord, we could not do anything, and therefore He had to do it all. And Christ earned these things for us. Verse number 19, having, by the way, that means you have this because Christ earned this and gave this to you. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, I don't have to go too deep into the old uh, uh, tabernacle or the temple or the construction of it, Uh, but what what you need to know is there were certain courts that people could access and there were certain limitations to how far certain people could go. You see, there was a court of the Gentiles and that happened to also be the court of, of women is what they called it. That was where the Jewish women could go and the Gentile, whether male or female, could go no farther than that. There was the court of, of, of men or uh, the court of Israel and, and those men could go, Jewish men could go that far. There was a, another wall or partition there that only the priest in service and of and, and, uh, the brazen altar could go into. And then there was the holy, uh, uh, the holy of holies and, and the holy place. And, and the, the holy of holies and the holy place were separated by a curtain and you could see if you were standing in the court of women or even farther out, even at the entrance of the beautiful gate, I believe you could look through and see all the way up unto where those priests were at the brazen altar. But even though you could see there, you were not prohibited to go as far as your gender, as far as your nationality, as far as your office in the religion allowed you to go. And only once a year would the, the high priest be able to enter into the Holy of Holies, where in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And once a year, for the atonement of all Israel, they would sacrifice there, and they would place the blood of that sacrificed animal on the mercy seat. You see, but only one man could enter there. And here in verse number 19, the Bible says, "...having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus." I can thankfully say on the authority of God's Word this evening that it does not matter your gender, it does not matter your nationality, it does not matter where you've been or what you've done, it does does not matter how bad you've been, but you have access to the throne of God not because of who you are or what you've done, but because the blood of Jesus gave you access there. And we can go all the way to the holiest place which was once only reserved for the very best and most spiritual in all of Israel, we, the common man, have access to the throne and the presence of Almighty God. He gave us boldness with God. Just this last week, I was reading through the book of Esther, and I couldn't help but come to it with this thought in mind, as you remember the story, but... Essentially, Esther is made queen, and a man by the name of Haman hates the Jewish people. More specifically, he hates Mordecai, the the man that raised Esther. Mordecai wouldn't bow to him, and so uh, Haman got very angry at this situation, and Haman came in. He had been elevated to be above all the other princes and all the other uh, counselors in all the land, and he comes to the king one day, and he says, King... There is a group of people in your land that do not share your laws, they do not obey your laws, and they are not profitable unto your reign. And so the king says, okay, Haman, we'll do whatever you want to do. And Haman devises a plan whereby they might murder and have genocide of all the Jews. And so the king, not really knowing that much about what Haman's plan was, and also not knowing Esther's nationality, he uh, stamps that and signs that decree. And so therefore, all these Jews find out about this decree. I mean, they're all, for one day, they're all going to be killed. And so, you remember the story? But Mordecai comes up and he covers himself. He comes to the king's gate, covers himself with sackcloth and ashes. And he's there mourning. And uh, Esther's maids come to her and tell her what's going on. And so she sends for Mordecai and says, I'm not going anywhere. And, she, and the maids come back and, and Esther says, okay, why not? And they go back to Mordecai and, and Mordecai shares with her the decree and actually gives it to the maids. They deliver it to Esther. And so uh, Esther then engages Mordecai in conversation. And Mordecai knows how bad this situation is and he recommends to Esther that she go directly to the king. After all, she is the queen. And she says, but I can't do that. Everybody knows that if anybody comes into the king's courtroom uninvited and he does not lift the golden scepter, then they will be killed. And Mordecai tells Esther there, he says, well, whether, and I love this part, one day I'll preach a sermon on this, Mordecai, despite his sad countenance, knows God will deliver, because he looks at Esther and he says, oh, God's going to save his people, whether by you or whether by some other person, but he's going to save his people, and he says, but it may be that you were put in this place for such a time as this. The story proceeds. Esther says, okay, Mordecai, if I'm going to do this, I need you to go fast for three days. Don't eat or drink anything. You go tell everybody that's here in the kingdom to go fast and not eat or drink anything for three days. I'll go do the same. She has her maidens do the same. And for three days, there's this fast all in the kingdom. She approaches the king's throne room. The Bible tells us that the king sees her. And could you imagine the nerves in Esther's heart if he does not raise his scepter? I don't know what his decision-making process was. Maybe he raised his scepter based upon the, the beauty of her dress that day. Maybe he raised his scepter based upon how good a mood he was in. I don't know why or when or what time he would raise that scepter, but we know he raises the scepter for Esther. And she goes in and, and gives her request to the king after several feasts. And, and the king answers her petition. And it's a great story of the king helping Esther, but God delivers his people. Aren't you so thankful that this morning or this evening or what, no matter what time of day it is, You do not have to worry about your king raising his scepter and accepting or rejecting you based upon how he feels... Aren't you thankful that at any point in time in the day you can bow your head and go to your Heavenly Father and say, Lord, I have a need. Lord, I I need you to help me. Lord, I don't know the answer. and, And I know you see all and know all. Lord, I need you today. And there has never yet been a child of God been turned away from the throne room of God. We have boldness to access the throne room of God. That's what Hebrews chapter 4 says. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. And so Jesus gave us boldness with God. Secondly, Jesus gave us a better system. Notice in verse number 20, the Bible says... By a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh. By a new and living way is the interesting words I would draw your attention to there. See, while Christ came to this earth, He did a lot of great miracles. I'm reminded of specifically two where He rose someone from the dead. You remember He called Lazarus from the dead, and he raised the widow's son from the dead. But you see, Christ came to bring life. But it was more so than just being raised from dead to life. The Bible tells us that the new system, the new covenant that Christ would establish, would be a new and living way. Oh, these... Uh, in fact, you recall that uh, he said one time to the lady at the well, if you knew the kind of water that I had to offer, you would ask for living water. You remember that. It is in fact the very same word that we find here in our passage, new and living way. It is a, a, a water that never makes us thirsty. This new and living way it would last and it would supply all our needs. He gave us a better system. Not only did he, 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 he say that to the lady at the well, but He also said in John chapter 10, Oh, the thief cometh not but for to kill and steal and destroy. But I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. You see, Christ came to bring us new life. And the Bible says, He that hath the Son hath life. We have life in Christ. And this new system that he would bring in would, would be so superior to the old system. Yesterday, me and Preacher were driving down the road and I saw some guys hanging power lines. But I, I don't think there were power lines, there were actually internet lines. The reason I know that is because several weeks ago we were cutting some trees and the chainsaw went a little farther than I thought it needed to and uh, I cut the, the, the internet line turns out there's some people down the road that enjoyed their television and needed their internet and so the next day we see the car driving around and they say hey do you know anything about an outage and i thought to myself have no clue (laughs) but we saw them hanging some line how many of y'all remember the old days where when you started your internet it made the most annoying sound in the world it's kind of you remember that was that dial-up internet right And uh, we used to think that that was awesome. We didn't even use the term Google it back then because we we didn't want to wait on Google to answer it. We'd just go to the Encyclopedia Britannica and figure it out ourselves before our internet connection could bring it up. But now, we have 5G. I saw yesterday AT&T advertising 5G wireless network. That's crazy. Uh, we have now fiber optic line that's buried, and, and uh, I know that the church speed right now is about 27 megabytes per second, uh, and we're looking now to upgrade it to 100 megabytes per second. Are you kidding me right now? What, what is that? That's an upgrade. That's a new system that's just far superior to the old system. And what Christ did when he came and his dying on the cross, he brought to us a new system that did not require us to go to Jerusalem and did not require our presence at the temple. But we have our high priest every day making intercession for us. You see, he gave us a better system. And he gave us boldness with God. And thirdly, I want you to see, he gave us a benefactor in heaven. Verse number 21, the Bible says... And having an high priest over the house of God. The old high priest certainly had his place. And uh, he, there were some good ones in Israel's history. Aaron had been one. And there had been several others that were decent high priests. But, but in every case, those men were imperfect. And those, those men could serve each and every day. Uh, as hard as they wanted to serve and yet their, uh, the, their obligations and their commitments could never be fulfilled because there was never a time when, when through them the system by which we have a peace with God could be, could be met. And yet those men may have been good men, but they were not God men. You see, Christ came to this earth, and He died on the cross, rose again the third day, that He might become our new high priest. Oh, He doesn't have to put on the priestly garments, although I will say that in the book of Revelation, when John sees Him, He is wearing the priestly garments. I will say that right now Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven and he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And that's why Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points and every manner tempted like as we are, because our high priest came and he knew what we went through, and yet he overcame it all and we have access to God through him. Those high priests may have been good high priests, but they were constantly in a state of cleansing themselves. I don't know if you know this, but the priests had to cleanse themselves ceremonially to serve in the temple. Every once in a while, they would have to kill a red heifer and save the ashes, and Even in that process of of, of burning that red heifer, the man that slew the red heifer immediately had to go out and cleanse himself. The man who burned the red heifer had to go out and cleanse himself. And the man that collected the ashes from the red heifer had to go out and cleanse himself. Those men were in a constant state of cleansing, but my friend, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the righteous high priest. No need for any more cleansing. He is a perfect high priest, he gave us a benefactor that is in heaven. Have you ever gotten caught speeding only later to realize that you pay more attention in those zones than you do anywhere else? I know my wife got caught speeding not long ago, and it happens that I now notice the speed limit in that particular zone more than I do anywhere else around town. I got caught speeding and godly when I was about 16 years old and I pay attention and I make sure my speed is down low enough so I'm not going to get a ticket there. Why? Because I learned from the situation what the right way to behave was. I learned what the speed limit was and so therefore, the enforcement of that officer made me pay attention more. Now the traffic lights, yeah, I still struggle with that one, but, but speed limit... You say, why do you say that, Brother Andrew? I say that because as we study this passage, I believe the overwhelming message is this. Considering these doctrinal truths that we have discussed, how should we implement them? Are you with me? considering the fact that, God, that Christ gave us boldness with God and a better system by which we are to live. And He gave us a benefactor that is constantly in the presence of God, praying for us and, and, and supplicating on our behalf to God. Given these doctrinal truths, how is it supposed to affect you? And the Bible says this, number one this evening, Let us, given all that we've discussed, let us, in verse number 22, draw near. The first thing we ought to do is we ought to draw near to God. Given all that Christ has done for us, do you know the reason He did it for us? So that we might be able to be close to God. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, their sin separated them from God. And they were cast out of the Garden of Eden from the paradise of God and from the presence of God. And what Jesus came to undo was what men had done. We destroyed our fellowship. The Bible says, oh, in that day ye shall surely die that ye eat of the fruit. What God meant was you'd be separated from me. And what Jesus came for was to heal the whole that separated me and you from our God. Our fellowship was distant and yet Christ came to die for us that we might be able to draw near to God. There is no greater knowledge that can be possessed in this life than the knowledge of the Savior's love for us. You can study every book. You can know everything about science and chemistry, which I think those are the same. But you can study all sorts of manly wisdom. But there is no greater knowledge than knowing this very simple truth. Jesus loves you. And given that consideration, we ought to want to draw near to our Savior. The Apostle Paul put it like this, And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. He said, I count all these things for loss that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul put it this way, For I determined to know nothing among you save Christ and Him crucified. Paul's chief pursuit in life was to know Jesus better. I'll say this, and I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad, but the only thing keeping you from being close to God is you. Because God has done everything within His power to the extent of sending His own Son And by the way, the Bible says God was in Christ reconciling Himself. So as Christ died on the cross, it was God on that cross. And and the God-man died for us. God did everything in His power to destroy the curtain that separated you and I from Him. And yet we sit here and don't desire the intimacy that He provides. What a foolish Christian it is that thinks that there's any fulfillment in this world outside of the relationship that Christ offers to them. God says, I want you to draw near me. Having therefore this brethren, having this boldness, having this better system, having this uh, benefactor in heaven, having all of this, let us draw near to God. And then the Bible says this, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. What does that mean? It means that there is something in us, and I don't know why, but there is something in each and every one of us that says in a very small voice that you are not worthy to be close to God. At least in my life, I know that there's this voice that says, you're not good enough. You don't deserve that relationship. There's nothing you've ever done to be in that position where you should be called a son of God. There's nothing that you've ever done in your life that would put you in a place of blessing and of honor and esteem in God's eyes. And yet the still small voice, I believe, is the accuser of the brethren throwing those thoughts in my heart. And the Bible here says, not only can we draw closer to God, but we can do it with a true heart, full of assurance that God wants us to. Jesus extended many invitations to those that would come near to Him. He says in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. He says in Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, all ye that are laboring and are heavy laden. He says in John chapter 7, uh, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. In John chapter 6, he says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. The problem in our relationship with God is not Jesus not wanting us to be there. For Jesus said time and time and time again, You can know your God. Amen. And when we understand that truth in the Bible, we, with a heart full of assurance in faith in God's word, we can come to God and say, Lord, I know I'm not worthy. Lord, I sure don't deserve it. Lord, Lord, There is nothing that I can ever do to repay it. But Lord, I want to be close to you. And I want to know you. And there is nothing more important in my life than knowing you. We can say that. And we can know that with a heart full of assurance that when when God says, if any man will draw unto him, he will draw unto us. There's a tremendous truth that we can draw near to God. I want you to see, secondly, when we understand the doctrine that is discussed in chapter 10, we can take that doctrine and convert it to every day, not only by drawing closer to God, but secondly, by deciding to stand. Verse number 21 Verse number 22, let us draw near with a heart, a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. He says in verse number 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. The word hold fast there means to retain And it specifically speaks of a ship that has set sail and his course is ahead of him. And as the waves of this world come about, they have stayed on course because that is their true course. They're holding fast to the course that was set before them. And not only does it say that we should hold fast, but it says that we should hold fast the profession of our faith. The word profession there means the substance of our profession which we embrace with hope. You see, faith produces hope. Faith in God gives us hope that God is taking care of our situation. And when, when the Bible here says, let us hold fast to the profession of our faith, it is literally, this is what I believe it's saying, it is saying... If you say you have faith, live out that faith. No matter what what wave smacks you upside the head, hold fast the faith that you vocalize so frequently. Hold fast all those times when you've given counsel to others. Hold fast to the counsel that you have given when it's your time to need counsel. You see, it's easy to go to somebody in their time of difficulty and say, hey, brother, I'm praying for you. God's got a plan. And then in our time of difficulty, we go to God and say, God, what are you doing right now? That's what it's saying. Is that the faith in our life would culminate and develop into hope in God that He would take care of every situation. I believe it's quite similar to Psalm chapter 16. The Bible says, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. You see, God is our fixed position. He is the one that we are looking to. And no matter what wave and wind drives and pushes us in this world, our sight is fixed on Jesus. I was reading a story of a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. He grew up and was a wealthy businessman and lawyer in the city of Chicago. 1870, everything seemed to be going well. And his son, he had five children. His only son contracted scarlet fever and passed away in 1870. Most of Mr. Spafford's money was tied up in real estate and other investments there near Chicago. Just a year after his son passes away in 1871, the Great Fire of Chicago wiped out nearly every investment that he had. This had been a tough two years and Mr. Spafford decided that he could see the toll that these two traumatic events had taken on his family and so he and his family decided to take a vacation and they were going to go to England and they were going to accompany uh, uh, D.L. Moody on one of his evangelistic crusades there in England. And so he packed them up and just before he was about to leave, a business matter came up and he had to stay in Chicago, but he sent his family on ahead. And it was not many days after that Mr. Spafford received word that the ship that was carrying his family had sunken. It had been struck by another vessel, and in 12 minutes, the vessel had sunk. 226 passengers passed away, and until the Titanic sank, this particular incident was the worst catastrophe in naval history. Mr. Spafford, several days after, received word from his wife, a telegram that she sent from England, and it read like this, Saved alone, what should I do? Mr. Spafford boarded a boat as quickly as he possibly could. He started his course to England, where he would eventually meet up with his grief-stricken wife. At one point during the journey, the captain called him up to the deck, and he approached the captain, and the captain said these words. A careful reckoning has been made and I believe we are now passing the very place that the Via de Húvar sank. That was the ship that his family was on. It was at this time that he left that place and he penned the words to the very famous song, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. We have church members that are facing incredibly difficult times in their life. The losing of loved ones, the uncertain future of of not having work, We have people all in our church struggling with real world things. And and we give them advice like, oh, it's going to be okay. Oh, everything's going to work out. But my friend, it's hard in those moments to follow the faith that you have. But given that all that Christ has done for us, He did not desert us in salvation. Do you really think He's going to desert us in everyday life? Bible says, oh, your father knows what you have need of already. His his ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. Neither is his arm short that it cannot save. You see, God knows what his children need. The final chorus to that song reads like this. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be made sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. You see, what our faith currently does is it looks forward to the promises of God. We accept them. We don't have evidence. We don't, don't have any other proof, other proof other than a very old book tells us these things. And, and our faith accepts them because we accept this as God's authoritative holy word. And our faith teaches us that. But there's going to come a day when our faith is made sight there's going to come a day where all of the questions that we have will be answered. And as we're working out our everyday life, the Bible here is teaching us to hope in the promises and the assurance that God one day will answer every question. He will strike away every doubt and every fear. We see God wants us to draw near to Him. We see God wants us to decide to stand For him, and we see thirdly, God wants us to deliberately encourage our brethren. See, given all that Jesus has done for you. Because isn't that what we covered? We went down through Hebrews chapter 10. Christ has done so much. He's given us a new system. And He's he's given us a benefactor in heaven that is constantly praying for us and wanting the best for us. And he's, He's given us all of this. But given what God has done for you through Christ. Verse number 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. He says, this is the way I want you to encourage your brethren. Number one, he says, I want you to consider them. Did you know that sometimes we get caught looking at our own lives as if we're the only one that has a life? You ever fall guilty of thinking that your problems just are bigger than everybody else's problems? That yours are more real, that yours are more bona fide than your neighbor's? The Word of God here encourages us, if you're going to be a blessing to your brothers, if you're going to encourage your brethren, uh, your brethren here's what you've got to do, consider them. Today we were on our way to lunch, my wife and I, and, and we were in the left-hand lane traveling down 174. And we noticed a car over there on the left-hand side, and I think they were having some battery issues. And you would not believe all of the people that were doing what I call rubbernecking. I mean, if there's a car on the side of the road, it's like Texans are the nosiest people in the world. It's like wherever they're going, say they're going to Walmart and they're doing the grocery pickup thing... They want to make sure that they understand what's happening so they can get to the grocery deal. So when the guy says, would it be okay if we swap this? You say, you won't believe what I saw back there. Somebody had a flat tire. I mean, we are just the nosiest lot. But everybody looks on these things. But listen to me. There's a difference between looking at everybody else's problem and considering it. Oh, we drive by, assess everybody's problem all the time. You know why I think that is? Because it's difficult to ask. No, how are you doing? Sometimes we say this, How you doing, brother? But we don't want the real answer. In fact, we rarely give the the real answer. We say that as a formal greeting. But the reality is, if we truly asked everybody in this room tonight, How you doing? And, And we were honest in our answer, some of us would have to say, You know... I'm just not doing all that good. I'm trying. I'm wanting to. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I've asked people for counsel. I've asked them for guidance. But I just tell you, I feel like I'm out of answers. There's a big difference between looking and considering, isn't there? The Bible doesn't say, oh, just just look at what's going on. No, it says consider. I think what it means is get right down in the nitty-gritty. I don't think it's encouraging us to be nosy, but it's encouraging us to go to our brother and say, hey, can I help you? Is there something I can pray with you about? At the beginning of the year, I made a decision to just approach people and ask them all the time, is there something I can pray with you about? You know what I've found? People do not have a shortage of prayer requests getting right down to the, the, the brass tacks of everything. We, and if we're going to encourage our brothers, we got to be a little bit more cl- uh, intimate with one another than just uh, passing by. Amen. We ought to treat each other as if we actually care. Wouldn't it be just a wonderful thing if we actually did care? We are to consider one another. Philippians chapter 2 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind each esteem others better than themselves, looking not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Man, I'll tell you what will make your problems disappear real quick is starting to look at somebody else's. From time to time I'll get down and I'll get discouraged and somebody will come to us with a prayer request like this. This little girl down at the school was just diagnosed with a a cancer of the brain. And you know what I found? My problems get really small in the light of some of the things people are dealing with. What we ought to do is we ought to consider our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because of all that Christ has done for us. For consider Him who endured such contradiction of sinners. He came all the way from Calvary. And by the way, He had no problems on the throne of glory. And He left the throne and He came to this earth to take on the problems and the pains that we put on Him. And our, or our unrighteousness became His unrighteousness. And His righteousness became our righteousness. And our sins were placed on His sinless back. And His uh, righteous garments were placed on our back. Consider Him next time you wonder whether or not your brother has problems. Because Christ thrust himself right in the middle of the world's biggest issue, their sin problem. Consider them. Secondly, we are to provoke them. Most people don't have a problem with that one. (laughs) Consider one another to provoke. You know what's funny is if you study this word, the word means to incite or irritate. How many of us can say, yeah, there's somebody in the church that provokes me all the time. Sometimes I have to restrain my uh, sharing my burden with them. They provoke me. Did you know this word is only used one other time in Scripture? This word provoked. It is, uh, maybe you'll recall it, Barnabas and Mark are going on a missions trip. And uh, Barnabas wants to bring John Mark along. You see, they've got some history with John Mark because John Mark deserted them on one mission trip. We don't know why. Uh, Maybe he had a problem at home. Maybe he just missed home. We don't really know why. But John Mark abandoned them at one point. And so Barnabas encourages uh, uh, Peter that they would take him on their next trip. And Peter says, he ain't coming with me. He's a deserter. He already messed up once. In fact, the Bible goes on to say in Acts chapter 15, verse 39... And the contention was so sharp between them. The word provoke in our passage is the exact word contention, uh, uh, contention was so sharp. When it says provoke, I think it means to provoke. I mean, I'd love to tell you that in the Greek, it, there's just a subtle, you know, hey brother, let's know. I think it means get up in somebody's grill. You know, I'll be honest with you. We could probably stand people up in our grill encouraging us and exhorting us and trying to make us do what is right. There is a tremendous lack of accountability in the local New Testament church. See, when you sign up to be a member of this church, you now represent this church. And more than that, You represent a Savior to the rest of the world. So when you start posting stuff on Facebook that looks kind of bad, you ought to be accountable for that. And I think when the Bible says, let's provoke each other to love and good works, posting dumb stuff on Facebook ain't good works. And you say, Brother Andrew, I'm sure it means something else. The only other time in Scripture the word used, it describes two of the greatest men in church history can't get along with one another, so they separate over the matter. John Mark and Barnabas go one way, Peter goes another. The contention was so sharp between them. Hey, it's never comfortable getting up in somebody's face and say, you know what you said to me the other day just wasn't honoring the Lord. What, what I heard you say in bus meeting the other day, that just did not please God. Those are never comfortable conversations. You know what? They're needed sometimes. That doesn't give you the right to be the spiritual police, but what it does do is it creates accountability. What I've noticed in my life is what is inspected is actually what is expected. When somebody holds us to a standard, that becomes the expectation. The reason we have people miss church all the time is because the expectation is that they're going to miss church. I mean, we just accept it for what it is. We say, well, they're not one of the three that thrivers. Now we ought to be up in their grill. You say, Brother Andrew, you're really stretching this beyond. Let us consider one another. And provoke each other to love and to good works. Do you think I'm stretching it that far? I would think that coming to church is a pretty good work. Amen. And what you'll find out as we move to the next thought, that we are, to, uh, uh, we are to deliberately encourage our brethren. We are to consider them. We are to provoke them. And I want you to see this. We are to exhort them. That's what the Bible says in verse 24, or verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You say, Brother Andrew, you're stretching it. This is literally talking about church attendance. (laughs) But more than that, the Bible says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more, as you see the day approaching. The word exhorting there means to call to one side, to console, encourage, and strengthen By consolation. Could you imagine being in the early New Testament church? Just imagine it with me as people that have the same faith as you are being thrown into prison. Stephen, early in the book of Acts, is martyred for the same faith that you have. Uh, the Sanhedrin council are judging Christians. You remember the apostle Paul literally was assigned to gather Christians and imprison them and to torture them. And it was Saul who was consenting unto the death of Stephen. And it is in this world that Christians were to exist and thrive. No wonder they met in house to house. They had to do it underground. They were persecuted on every side. Could you imagine being the person that was meeting in the house and everybody watched you walk up there knowing you were a Christian? Oh, you're one of those guys that believe Jesus rose, aren't you? You're one of those, those, those Christians. That they're calling them Christians over in Antioch. You're one of them. You know what I'm learning in my study of the New Testament church? They had to have one another because they were all they had. The government hated them. The the, the people that were in their former religion hated them. They called them blasphemers because the guy who they now claim to be their savior made himself equal with God. I mean, the reason the New Testament church had everything in common is because some of the silly, trivial things that we make huge deals about, they were like, it's okay, you're not trying to kill me. It's okay, at least we can agree on most things. We're together in this big thing. That's why the New Testament church had so much unity. And that's why exhorting meant to to call to one side, to strengthen, to uplift them. You know why? Because we all will face troubles in life that we're going to have trouble getting up from by ourselves. I don't care who you are, how long you've been saved, how spiritual you are. You're going to face something one day that will rock you to your core. Woe to the man in that day that has nobody to strengthen his hand. The Bible says that two uh, two is better than one and three is better than two. Why? Because woe to the man that falleth that has nobody there to lift him up. Well, that's not talking about falling in sin. Here's what I think it is. When your faith begins to fail, I need you to help me in those times. When things rock me to my core, I need you there to just say the little thing. Hey, preacher, I'm praying for you. Hey, preacher, this morning, I took time out of my busy schedule to lift your name to God on high. I'm praying and I'm concerned about you. Man, we ought to be exhorting one another. We ought to be lifting each other up. We ought to be strengthening each other. In light of everything that Christ has done for us, the least you can do is stop focusing on you and start focusing on others. Sometimes I think that doctrine is just black words on white pages. Sometimes I think that we get the idea that doctrine is just a system of belief. My friend, you could not be more wrong. Doctrine is a system for living. Because if doctrine is not worth reacting to, I don't want to believe that doctrine. He loved us, so we love him. I know this Bible is true, so I can act on this Bible. My friend, in light of everything that Christ has done for you, do you think there's something that you could do for him? Do you think that you could be a blessing to your brothers? Do you think you could decide to stand so when your day of tribulation comes that you would not fold in that moment, but that you would stand fast because your faith provides hope for you? Friend, in light of all that Christ did, the very reason he did it was so that you could have access to the throne of God. Are you drawing near to God tomorrow when you wake up and you neglect to read your Bible? You're failing to act upon the promise that God wants to be close to you. Are we where we need to be? Is doctrine truly active in our everyday life?